Welcome to A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. We share good news and godly wisdom to empower you to be salt and light in every season of life. In a society that favors the legalization of recreational drugs, where should the church stand? Does tax revenue really offset the societal cost? Join Luke and Doug as they discuss this key issue in our nation and what the church's response should be. After the episode, consider leaving a review and follow us on your favorite streaming service. If you've gleaned anything from this podcast, consider paying it forward with a gift at somebodycares.org. Now let's join our host, Doug Stringer. We grew up in the Jesus movement time, and we were, I guess, hippies, and we have all our stories I won't get into now. I know Michael and myself and others, maybe some of you on the call, had done drugs like marijuana, where you've done LSD, you've done psilocybin mushrooms, you've done psychedelics. And who would ever thought all these years later, for those of us who know that these things had an effect on us plus on society, that now we're having to discuss the legalization of these things for recreational use. You know, it started out medicinal, but it's always the next step. And now it's recreational. And we've seen the the societal impact of the use of these recreational drugs or legalizing them. That's why I wanted so much to have Luke Neferados on with us. He's the son-in-law of Pastor Michael Walker at a church in the city, Beth Abraham in Denver, Colorado, also our director in the ministry of Somebody Cares Denver. Luke and I had talked a few years ago. I was really intrigued with all that he's been involved in and has become really a policy expert across the country and being invited by heads of state of other nations to come and talk about the impact of the use of drugs. So let me just read quickly his bio to help you understand a little bit about his background. Luke serves as the executive vice president of Smart Approaches to Marijuana, SAM, and is widely recognized as one of the nation's leading drug policy experts. Leveraging more than a decade of working on drug addiction and healthcare issues, he drives the strategy behind it to federal, state, and educational initiatives. Luke has testified in state capitals across America. He is a sought-after guest on major media outlets, including ABC, Fox News, NBC, CNBC, C-SPAN, Newsmax, and network affiliates, as well as syndicated on local radio shows and markets at Coast to Coast. Luke has been featured in Time Magazine and as a speaker of drug policy events held by The Economist, the United Nations Commission on Narcotic Drugs, and hundreds of town hall meetings. And so we're really blessed to have Luke with us today. Luke, it's great to have you on, friend. And you've been stretched and so busy, especially the last couple of years with all the craziness out there, the nonsensical things that are happening. But thank God that you were appointed for a time such as this to have not just a thought or an opinion, but you have knowledge, you have information, you've done your research. And so you truly have become an expert in these areas. And living in Denver, one of the cities that has legalized these things, you've seen the direct impact that society has been hit by because of these politicians and others who make decisions not based on what is best, but what is political at the time. So Luke, thank you for being on with us today. Thank you, Doug. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you all for joining us. And um, I just want to say I'm just really grateful for the work you're doing with Somebody Cares and your ministries really being felt across the country and really across the world, just being a faithful servant of Christ, and that just shows in in everything that you do. So thank you for having me on, Doug. How in the world did you get involved 
in becoming a, a policy expert and speaking on these issues of marijuana and now psychedelics and other things that are becoming recreational drugs that now they're trying to justify and legalize them? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, it's it's funny, I get asked that uh, quite a bit. And I, I honestly had zero interest in drugs growing up. Um, you know, I grew up in a ministry family. So, you know, it was a substance-free house. And so, you know, I didn't grow up with any, any of those things around, not even alcohol, nothing. And uh, you know, was raised just to kind of stay away from those things for reasons my, you know, my dad particularly had experiences that he was really a great father to me and that he shared very openly with me what, you know, each of the different substances that he had used in his past, uh, what they did and what they led to and, you know, why it was a bad idea to, to do those things. And actually, it's funny, I remember vividly, uh, I think I was... Um, see, probably like eight years old. And my dad had opened up a copy of USA Today for that day, the newspaper. In that was a description of all the different types of drugs and what their harms were and why they they hurt you. And it was just interesting that that had been put in the newspaper because it's kind of hard to picture that happening again today, to be honest, just sad. Uh, but my dad kind of walked me through each one of those substances and said, and I was very young, but I was curious to know about it. And he basically told me, you know, why each one was a bad idea, very straightforward. And so from that day forward, for me, I just never had interest in it. So, um, you know, never touched any of those things, obviously growing up. And um, then, you know, just really happened to be, I think for me, what drew me to this issue was, uh, you know, seeing it be debated in Colorado, you know, we voted on it in um, 2010, and we rejected it. And then in 2012, we voted on it again, uh, and ultimately passed uh, legalization of recreational marijuana. And I voted against it, I was very much against it. But for me, it wasn't something I was actively thinking about. And then in 2014, when we rolled it out, I noticed all the effects. I smelled it a lot more everywhere. Um, you know, I had friends in college who I, I graduated, uh, let's see, in 2000, in, uh, in 2012 uh, in, in, from college. But I had friends that, you know, were using medical marijuana um, in college. And, you know, they were telling me how they had just faked their symptoms and gotten medical marijuana cards and they were selling it, um, you know, on campus, et cetera. So I had seen the effects. And so I felt like, you know, I'm the only person in Colorado who seems to think this is not going well. And, you know, so I kind of, you know, keep my opinions to myself for the most part, but I really didn't like it. You know, as you heard in my bio, I had uh, done some work in healthcare. I had a healthcare company and I was looking for my next thing to do. And I was talking to a friend I just mentioned offhand. I said, you know, this marijuana thing is really not going well. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what your opinion is of it. And I fully expected him to disagree with me. And he said, no, I agree. It's, it's really uh, been a horrible experiment for our state. And he said, by the way, the person who's trying to start the national organization to oppose all this stuff called Sam is actually going to be in town. His name's Kevin Sabet. And why don't you meet him? So two days later, I had breakfast with him. He and I hit it off. I was struck by the fact that no one was working on these issues. Um, there was no major nonprofit organization working against the legalization of marijuana or other drugs. There was no one speaking from the public health, science, family perspective of what are we doing to our communities and we should really think about this. And so for me, it was kind of like a here I am, send me moment. Um, you know, there are so many people working on other things that matter, you know, whether it comes to life or, you know, um, other, you know, family issues. but nobody was really working on on drugs. And I just kind of thought, well, you know, uh, I'm willing to step up to the plate and go. And God really kind of, you know, sent me from there. So moved my family, uh, you know, and we moved to DC and lived there for two years, building out this organization, growing it into a national, really the top national organization on marijuana and now other drug issues, which I can get into later. Uh, but that's really how I fell into it, frankly, was just 
uh, being in the, fir the first state in the country to legalize marijuana and, you know, really being willing to step up to the plate and do something about it. Because you bring up a lot of great points here. I really appreciate the way you shared that your father didn't just say, it's just bad, don't do it. He actually sat you down and went through each one and uh, the practical reasons, not just the spiritual reasons why it would not be good. And you're right. We're living in a culture today. That we don't really hear that side. There's so much nonsense out there. We talk about follow the science. Well, they're not following the science. You look at not just the, what it does to individuals, but what's happening to whole communities and the economy. I mean, you know, yesterday I was uh, messaging with our uh, directors of our chapters of our ministries in Baltimore and in Minneapolis and some other places. In fact, our director of Somebody Cares Baltimore also works very closely with the police department who is actually helping to raise up, uh, I think, 150, 200 volunteer chaplains for the Baltimore Police Department who's seen right. a huge increase in crime over the years. But it's exasperated now with the legalization of marijuana and drugs now there as of July 1st, and already have seen an increase of gang-related issues, uh, people vying for the turf, so to speak. And of course, we always hear well, if we do this, if we have a toll road, if we do lotteries, if we legalize this, we'll get the tax revenue and put it into education. But yeah. the reality is education is worse than it's ever been. And we have the most fatherless nation in the world. And so we see the results, but we're not looking honestly at the end results of what these things have done in this Pandora's box that has been opened. Can you address a little bit about what you see from an economic standpoint of what's happening to communities because of the politics that's basically saying it's good for revenue, it's good for education, but it's not. And then, of course, the increase of the homeless population. Yeah, no, I think you're bringing up really great points because I think a lot of this discussion is economic. And so before I get into some of the economic discussion, which I have a lot to say on that, just from a faith-based perspective, we don't monetize sin, right? So it just that I really have a hard time wrapping my mind around. This is something that we all agree we wish people didn't do. You know, whether we agree it's a sin or not, or we think it's just a, a bad, poor choice, whatever it is, this is something we don't think a lot of people should do. However, we're going to let people build large corporations around it. And then we're going to tax it. And we're going to put that money to good things. And then we're going to feel better about promoting and institutionalizing the bad thing, you know, and, and that to me, I just, I really have a hard time with that. Uh, you know, I don't think anyone thinks it'd be a great idea if more people drank alcohol in this country, if more people gambled in this country, but the industries we've allowed to build around those vices, if you will, their whole purpose is to promote more use of these substances. And so to me, the tax revenues don't justify that. So that's just a, a faith-based comment. But when you look at the numbers, and so let's just kind of grapple with what's going on, we're losing money on every legal substance that we allow in this country. So tobacco and alcohol taxes, uh, the alcohol taxes have never been lower. Literally, they're the lowest they've been since the Korean War. We are losing, we understand from the CDC and from our, our um, National Institutes of Health, we're losing $10 in social costs for every $1 in alcohol and tobacco tax revenue that we get in this country. So we're not making money to cover the harms inflicted by these substances. And it's really important that we all understand that. That's publicly known information that's provided to us by the federal government. Um, we're losing money on these, these, these legal substances. So with that understanding, now going into marijuana, 
where we were promised here in Colorado, and it's promised across the country, that if you legalize this substance, you will make so much money in tax revenue, you'll be able to cover all the costs and you know fund education. That's something we were promised um, in Colorado. And what we found is there was a study done just a couple of years ago in Colorado that we're losing $4.50 in social costs for every $1 in state tax revenue from marijuana. And by the way, Colorado makes the most money off of tax revenue of any other legal state. There's about 22 states that have legalized marijuana. And in Colorado, it makes up about 0.025% of our state budgeted revenues. So it is a fraction of a percent of the revenues that our state makes is coming from marijuana taxes. So the misnomer out there is that you can make a bunch of money off of taxing it. You can't. You also will not cover the costs of dealing with the regime. So what do I mean when I say social costs? Well, first of all, addiction. We're seeing much, uh, many more people addicted to marijuana now. Just 10 years ago, this is research from the National Institutes of Health, it was one in 10 people who used marijuana in the last year would develop an, a cannabis use disorder, an addiction to it. Now, with the way marijuana has changed since it's been legal, the industry has made the potency much higher. So it went from 3% average potency a few decades ago to 99% potent products now. So it's a totally different drug we're talking about. Like if you're thinking about joints and stuff, the Woodstock days, it's long gone. Now what we're talking about is vaping it, shatters, waxes, concentrates, brand new iterations of marijuana that this industry has invented. Those much more high potency products now have driven up the addiction rate. So now if you use marijuana today, one in three people will develop a cannabis use disorder or, or an addiction to marijuana. One in three. From one in 10 a decade ago to one in three now. So um, the addiction is a social cost, dealing with treatment costs for that. Uh, and then you mentioned um, crime. And so what we're seeing from the research is crime go up in areas that have pot shops. We're seeing crime go up in states that have chosen to legalize marijuana. My state of Colorado is top three in the country for rising property crime and violent crime rates. Um, we used to be, for those of you who know Colorado or have ever visited in the last two decades, I mean, we used to be a very peaceable state. You know, on the on the nightly news, I, I would always joke about the fact that, you know, the, the, the big story of the news hour at seven o'clock here in Denver was, you know, somebody lost their grandma's urn, you know, and they're looking for it, uh, you know, all over the city. Literally, there were stories like that. Now we have stories about homicides, property crime. I mean, it's just a totally different scene. Now, I'm not attributing all of that to the decision to legalize marijuana. But what we need to understand is that you ask any member of law enforcement, I said on my chief of police advisory board, he will tell you the object of most of the crime is related to drugs. It's, you know, robbing from Home Depot to sell what they just stole to then buy drugs. Um, so, you know, things like that. So drugs are very much in, uh, integrated with crime and with public safety. And anyone who deals with that, uh, you know, will tell you that. It's really important to understand, there, you know, the economic side of this, but also the way that drugs just correlate with not only crime, but just, you know, public order. You know, for example, you know, my my wife and I have two little girls. You can see them here. Uh, Shiloh's six and Eden is two. You know, we're driving to King Supers and there's a guy who was tripping out on something and he was thrashing and running across in the middle of the street as were cars in the oncoming traffic. And so that's just an anecdote, but you know it changes the environment. You see more homelessness. And by the way, you know there's a homelessness epidemic in a lot of the major cities, including Houston and other places across the country. People think of homelessness as kind of you know maybe it's a choice or they don't really know what goes into it. 99% of the folks that are homeless right now in our cities are experiencing 
either an addiction issue or an addiction and a mental health issue at the same time. You really can't pull drugs out of that equation. Addiction is absolutely a part of the equation with homelessness too. So, you know, those are some of the, the issues that we see. And so I think we make decisions on policy. I think a lot of people thought, okay, well, we'll make tax revenue. Maybe there'll be jobs, things like that. We can legalize something and still discourage it. So let's just legalize these substances. But they didn't realize the downstream effects that would take place. And, they, and these are just some of them um, that, that we're seeing. Uh, but I think it's really important that we push back on this notion of, you know, we can have something legal and still discourage it. Because what we're seeing with marijuana is that it's becoming legalized but we're not seeing communities discourage it. We're in fact seeing a complete embrace of use in industry that is advertising and marketing it. And so it's pushing more people to use it. And, and that's, that is the big concern there from, from my perspective. What's interesting to me, Luke, that it always starts with this conversation that, well, it's good for medicinal use. And so we started hearing that, but it's never, it stops there. Okay, great. If you find some medicinal use of something, just like back in the day, they used to, Coca-Cola, it's called Coca-Cola because it used to have cocaine in it. Yeah. And then they realized this wasn't good for people. So they had to change it and put caffeine in it. But it's one thing to use something for strict medicinal use in a medical environment versus having machines and things to get it, have a medical card. And then the next step to legalizing it, even from a practical standpoint in my own life, and just like your father and, and others, we started out as a teenager, I started experimenting with, with marijuana pot. And it did affect me in school. It affected me in development. It affected me in so many ways. And for me, it was entry level besides our alcohol parties, but the marijuana, and then it turned into LSD. And after it rained, I go out in the cow patties looking for psilocybin mushroom. And I'm looking back now thinking, what must have I looked like out there crawling through a cow dung looking for these mushrooms? And then we'd have these parties, you know, tea parties, the psilocybin mushroom tea parties. And, and I'm thinking it had a, a, an adverse effect on every one of the people I knew, including myself. From there, almost overdosing on things like PCP and other things later, it doesn't just stop at medicinal. Societies and communities have a negative impact on them. You brought something up earlier, too, that it's not just the, the amount of cost, but then you're looking at whatever tax revenue you get from legalizing some of these things. It goes back and they say it's always going to be used for education, but education is the worst it's ever been in our country. At the same time, what about the cost to the community or society? When you have people now no longer getting in car accidents and killing people because they're drunk on alcohol, but now because they're high on drugs and they kill somebody. In fact, they just happened in Minneapolis just the other day. Right. One of our folks there said somebody was driving a, like 100 miles an hour, ends up killing a bunch of people. They had no alcohol content, but they had drugs in their yeah. system. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, in fact, I was in Denver a few years ago and Pastor Walker may remember this. And we were driving and I saw somebody running through the traffic, crisscrossing, just looking, just very confused, trying to dodge cars going by and was hit by a car. And so I pulled over and prayed over that person waiting for the ambulance to get there. But again, these are the kinds of things that begin to increase the corporate stress, community stress that's exasperated, it increases not just on those directly affected, but by a community at large. You make a, a number of great points. I really want to talk about medical. Before I get to that, though, you made a comment about starting with marijuana. And so it's absolutely so two interesting things about this. So first of all, one of the number one predictors of whether or not someone supports 
legalizing marijuana is actually whether or not they've used it themselves. And, and most of the people who have, who have used it have are more open to legalizing it, which is really interesting. And it just is a testament to the importance of prevention. The other thing I'll say is for folks who do use marijuana, if you look at, so it's, it, the, the statistics show between 95 and 99% of heroin users started with marijuana. Not to say that well, we've all heard the gateway drug you know, theory, and there are a lot of people I know that they swear by it. They say, I started with marijuana. It took me to these other drugs. It is a gateway drug. What, what I will say in the research is, while it's not a causal effect of you use marijuana and then therefore you're going to go and use harder drugs, nobody starts with fentanyl, for example. Nobody starts with LSD. Almost all of the folks who you meet who are using or addicted to whatever substance it may be, they started with marijuana along that journey. And you really can't deny that. That shows in the literature, some uh, research that shows you're three times more likely to be addicted to opioids if you are a marijuana user. Other research recently has shown you're 20 times more likely to use opioids if you're a marijuana user. So we are seeing now a lot of research showing that relationship. I think a lot of people think, oh, well, they use marijuana. That's their drug of choice. They just use marijuana. Very, very few people just use one drug, whether it's alcohol, tobacco, marijuana. Most folks combine, you know, they get kind of primed, if you will, to use other harder substances along their journey. So really important we know that. That's why it's so important to educate people about it, because it kind of kicks the door open a little bit for other drug use um, for folks. You know, back in the, the 80s and 90s, I was ministering to a lot of people coming through our organization and ministry looking for help. One was a 19-year heroin and then methadone addict who, praise God, got delivered, is walking, is a, just an amazing testament today and others like him. Others who, for their drug addiction, used to rob places like Kentucky Fried Chicken, ended up in prison for 15, 16 years. These are the kinds of people that the Lord was allowing us to minister to, but their healing deliverance came obviously in that understanding that you can't just band-aid the problem, but you have to deal with the root issues Right. And uh, this 19-year heroin methadone addict even shared, look, they take us from one thing, from our heroin addiction, into methadone. And it was a good idea, but that becomes an addiction. And right. so it's one thing compounds another, and it is a, just a, from a practical standpoint, an economic burden and cost to society at every level. And then, yeah, of course, you know, and I think that's what drug rehabs. Yeah, it's really important for the church. And this is one thing I wanted to talk about that was just from what I do with drug policy and the folks I see in addiction and, and everything every day. It reminds me every day the need for the church to start solving the root problem by showing people that Christ is the answer and that Christ can can empower them to overcome their addiction. Because there's so much debate right now in my field about, well, you know, some people are just going to always be addicted to drugs. There are even people making the argument that drug addiction is a biological necessity like sex and eating and, and other things. And, they, and they're basically trying to say that drugs are always going to be here. We have to just lead people to this. And, and some people will just never be free. Well, we know as Christians that Jesus promises freedom to everyone who accepts it from him uh, and that it's so easy for us to accept that freedom and he can do the miraculous in us. And so I think you know, what I'm seeing every day is particularly in our, in our country, and you see this a lot in first world rich countries, is that they've come to rely on their riches, not God. Obviously, we're seeing America become a textbook example of that. And so there's a lot of emptiness in our society. And so people are seeking to fill that emptiness with a wide range of things, money, distractions, pleasures, and yes, drugs. Drugs is a huge piece of that. And so I think for the church, understanding that showing people the true answer and getting out into the communities where People are experiencing poverty. People are experiencing all kinds of hurts and traumas. 
they need to know that Jesus is the answer and getting them before folks get into just this awful journey of addiction, whether starting with marijuana or going, you know, other drugs where they can ultimately die. You know, we're seeing fentanyl get into folks' drugs and dying from this. And so they're being lost along the way. You know, I was in Vancouver, British Columbia, and they have a, a raging drug crisis there. And people are dying every day, overdosing on fentanyl and, and other, is, you know, other issues. I was there just a few months ago. I'm walking down the street. There's literally a guy injecting, I think, heroin or you know something on the side of the street, just sitting there on the side of the street, injecting heroin. And I was looking at him and I thought to myself, this could be the last time this guy injects this drug because there could be fentanyl in it. He could overdose and die right on the side of the street. And I look up one side of the street and I look up the other side of the street and I think to myself, where are the church groups? Where are the folks spreading the gospel to reach these guys? Even as he's doing that, Telling him the gospel and, and saving his soul before he could potentially pass away at the very minimum, bare minimum. And then if he survives, then getting him the help that he needs and bringing him into, into the church. That is what is so sorely needed, is the church reaching out into these communities. And that's what I really appreciate about Somebody Cares, is that they're willing to do that dirty work that I think a lot of churches and ministries are not willing to do. But that's what's needed, is there are people in the cities right now and, and across this country that are so hopelessly lost in their addiction, so hopelessly lost in their life. They're addicted to something that could kill them. The enemy is going to use this to steal their soul before we can reach them for Christ. And we have to get out and get those people and show them, you know, the miraculous love of Christ before something like that happens where they can be taken away. And, and that's something that really I see in just in the work that I do every day. So it starts out, we're talking about marijuana, but now, which I personally, through experience, I think the so-called experts that sit in their, their ivory towers who come up with all this stuff and gerrymander all this information and they reject true statistics and information. And I appreciate what you're doing is looking for the facts and societal impact. They should ask people that have been there, that are doing well for long periods of time now, and asking them, what impact did it have on you as a teenager or as a young adult? And how other things did, did it impact the people you knew around you? And of course, increasing prison systems, increasing others, because they may not be arrested for the drug use, but they'll be arrested at some point for other elements of crime. And we've seen that, you know, exasperated over the years. And marijuana is one thing. And I can remember when I was probably young, I probably thought, oh, yeah, legalize it. And now I've been around a while. I'm thinking, no, don't do that. Right. Yet I was blown away that it actually began to happen and accelerate across the country. As you said, 20-something states have legalized it. There's an NFL football player that I love that team. But he gets on and says, talking about psychedelics. Yeah, Aaron Rodgers. So he says, probably the people complain about are people who've never tried it. You know, again, if he's talking about medicinal use, and then it was a congressman in my area that said the same thing, I'm thinking you're going down a, a trail here of no return. That The whole idea of Frankenstein was Dr. Frankenstein created something for a good reason in his mind, but turned into a monster. Right. We opened up a Pandora's box and have created a monster because if we start legalizing for recreational use, things like psychedelics as well. Now, we're not just talking about marijuana, but psychedelics, psilocybin mushrooms, you know, LSD, other things. We really are at a point of no return. And so how do you address that? Because I know you're having yeah. to deal with, with that issue now as well. Yeah, well, we have to use godly wisdom. And so, you know, you look at NFL quarterback, okay, great. Aaron Rodgers, one of the greatest. Good for him. He's not an expert on what medicine is by any stretch of the imagination. And so I think we have to use wisdom in terms of who's pushing for these policies. Yeah, they call it medical. 
uh, you know, it started with medical marijuana. Now we're at recreational marijuana. Oregon and now my state of Colorado became the first states to legalize medical psychedelics. And so in Colorado, we have magic mushrooms, ayahuasca, uh, psilocybin, multiple other psychedelic substances, even a form of MDMA that have now been legalized for medical purposes. But what does that mean in Colorado? Well, we have folks who you don't have to be a patient. You can just walk into a healing center, get a magic mushrooms and trip uh, and have a lay person watch over you as you're tripping, uh, not even a clinician. So uh, I think if you use wisdom, that's not medicine. You know, that's not the way, you know, civilized society has ever looked at medicine, uh, in, at least in the enlightened world. We've always said that scientists and doctors and medical professionals should decide what medicine is. So we formed the FDA about 100 years ago in this country to guide our medical process. From my organization's perspective and from my perspective, we have institutions and scientific professionals in place to decide what medicine is. And they tell us what the dosage is and they tell us what works. And you know that's the process we should follow. We should look with skepticism at the process that's taken place for medical marijuana and for now medical psychedelics and you know soon to be medical any other substance because that playbook has worked really well. That process is a political process that we've seen play out, where it's been voted on at the ballot. It's been voted on in state legislatures to decide what medicine is. And what we're seeing is it has nothing to do with prescriptions. You don't get a prescription for marijuana or for these psychedelic drugs. It's something that you're just given a card that says you can go get it and you decide what your medicine is. And I think we all understand what's going on. That, that has nothing to do with, with medical uh, purposes. So my perspective and my organization's perspective is, you know, we're not out here trying to throw uh, anybody in prison for, you know, the use of, of these substances. We think they need help for their addiction. They need help. We don't think that corporations should tell us what medicine is. And we don't think that corporations should be able to sell these drugs that could be harmful to folks. Now, the FDA has marked psilocybin as a breakthrough therapy. So I think the FDA will be approving legal prescription-based medications that are based on some of these psychedelic substances that are for you know, legal prescription use, if they're going to be used medicinally, that is the way that it should go. It is through a, a, an established legal process where you're under the care of a clinician. So it's really important that we understand the difference. That is the legal process through the regulatory framework we've created. Uh, having entrepreneurs say, I'm going to mail you ketamine and you can use that uh, you know, for your medicine for depression. That's not science-based. That's not approved in the literature. It's, you know, there's no uh, medical association in the, in the country that thinks that's a good idea. And so I think we have to look with a wise eye at the two processes and say, you know, it's godly wisdom to say, okay, what are our professionals and scientists telling us is medical? And then what are entrepreneurs who want to make a profit? What are they saying is medical? And, and I think we, you know, we, we can distinguish those two things. That's another great point. We could go on a lot about that as well, because we're living in a day in the advent of social media, the advent of electronic medicine and so on. But even more than that, there's a doctor who also is a pharmacist and is a medical doctor who's concerned because they used to work as a researcher for pharmacy companies and so on. And they broke away because they were so concerned that a lot of our medical facilities and trainings now in hospitals are funded by big pharma. Mm -hmm. And so basically who owns the narrative, because those who tell the story to find the narrative and create the history, so to speak, is big pharma. And so there's this conflict of interest, it seems to me, that those who are science-oriented, medical-oriented, professionals are now being groomed and guided and prodded. If you're going to succeed, then there is an element of selling your soul, so to speak, 
to big pharma. So that's a whole other area that of discussion, obviously. I think we have to look at it again from the, the perspective of, you know, what does the science and the research tell us? And we know that with marijuana and psychedelics, the research is telling us that you don't smoke your medicine. These are drugs that, and you don't consume, you know, magic mushrooms for medicinal purposes. There, there are probably medical applications. The research is telling us there's certainly medical applications, but we need a lot more time to understand what that is. And we need scientists to kind of guide us along the way. There's the science perspective. Then there's just using wisdom perspective. What are the interests of the actors involved? And then there's the perspective of just personally, okay, am I using whatever the substance is, marijuana, psychedelics, or any other medication or opioid or whatever that's out there, am I using this to fill a hole? Am I using this for mind-altering effects? You know, what are the purposes for my usage of this? And I think, especially for the body of Christ, that's a really important piece of this as well, because we have to kind of do our best to discern what's good and right in this world, in a world of a lot of gray areas and a lot of confusion and darkness. But then also we have to look internally and say, what are my driving points for my usage of whatever I'm using for medicine? And if it is for something that is getting in between me and my relationship with Christ, if it's becoming a crutch or something that I'm becoming dependent on, those are you know really red flags for any believer who's in their walk with Christ. That brings up an area of concern that I've had for years. You know, you have pastors who want to be relevant to what they think is cool and hip into the community. And some of them are justifying it. So it started out years ago where they would have a beer get together in Bible study, but now hard alcohol. And I even jokingly said, tongue in cheek, when Colorado legalizes marijuana use for recreational use, you'll start seeing a few so-called pastors come up, let's go smoke some pot and talk about Jesus together. And sure enough, that began to happen. And so it's like we have this conflict on so many fronts. I just pray that it would not come by shaking, but by choice that we get back to our senses. You talked about that common sense. We have a society of seared of conscience at every level, and we need to get back to some common sense and get back to that, especially as Christians, back to our first love so we can have an impact in the culture. Yeah, and I would recommend it for any pastors or any of you in your looking at church policy around this, there's a great book called Jesus and Mary Jane that a pastor in Oregon wrote. It's a fantastic book, Jesus and Mary Jane. And he kind of gets into it because in Oregon, they have legal marijuana and he gets into kind of how they approach the issue. It's a really good even-handed approach. It's it's not, you know, judgmental or kind of hellfire and brimstone, but it's using the Bible and using godly wisdom. And, and I think it strikes a nice balance and tone that might give you some good advice. But to me, it's very simple what it comes down to. Christ modeled for us what our relationship is to be with Christ as believers. And that is a marriage-like relationship between us and our Savior, Christ and the church. And so if I'm in a marriage-like relationship with him, I don't want to have anything come in between me and my spouse, my Savior. And so that means that I'm going to do anything I can to make sure that I have a, a completely clear communication with him. I can hear him perfectly. He can hear me perfectly. And here I am speaking lessons for that I need to learn with my wife as well. But, you know, listen, communicate, have complete open line there. And I think when you look at it that way, to me, it's very simple because then you look at everything else in the world and you say, does this distract me from my Savior? Is this at all getting in the way of me having a, the most unconditional, loving, and amazing relationship with my Savior. And I think it's very easy to, if we're honest with ourselves, to ascertain when those distractions are at place, whether that's with you know how you're spending your time, whether it's with television, any pleasure or distraction out there. And so I think that when you look at it with that kind of lens, then the use of these other substances and for whatever purported purposes 
when you look at what the use does to impact your relationship, I think it becomes very clear what you need to do. And, and so I, I, from my perspective, it really comes down to that relationship with Christ. I think some of the approach that we've been discussing with my family and some of my friends is that even with the advent of this great movie that just came out, really exposing human trafficking, we all agree that human trafficking is bad. We agree that we see the results of that. We all talk about it. We have ministries that are rising up addressing that. We have people in our associations of ministries that work in that area from Cambodia to other parts of the world, as well as here in the United States. We all can agree how terrible that end result is and the human trafficking, especially of children. But yet we don't stop to really go back and see the process by which it opens doors that these drug traffickers are now human traffickers are also leading young children into prostitution. And we see this thing exasperated. We see this thing exponentially growing, but that's exactly part of that path that we're taking when we begin this path where money is, you know, the love of money is the root of all evil. We see that this whole enterprising of legalizing of drugs. And now, of course, I can't even fathom still thinking about the psychedelics Again, outside a truly medical use, but now into recreational use and, and places that are, don't even have to have, you said, clinicians or medical professionals there, we are opening up a whole new avenue of human trafficking, crisis, yeah. crime, medical expenditure, increase of more taxes and increase of more needs. Yes. Dependence on, on welfare systems as well. I mean, that's something that it's so funny because I, I, I'll talk to libertarians and they're all about, you know, no government, very little government, you know, everyone's, you know, it, their decision has nothing to do with me. And yet they are in support. A lot of libertarians are in support of a policy that would create a whole new generation of people addicted and dependent on healthcare services and, and other such needs. And we don't live in a society where everyone's decisions are in a vacuum. We live in a society where we're all interlinked. It's a community. We pay for emergency services. We pay for the healthcare uh, services of tens, if not hundreds of millions of Americans who are on Medicaid and Medicare. Those are taxpayer subsidized services. And you better believe that folks who are on Medicaid and Medicare will, will need services as a result of these policies. And so that's something that I think is, is really important to understand is those who are in poverty and are in are less fortunate, underserved populations are the ones who are most harmed by the legalization of marijuana and psychedelics and whatever other substances are out there. How do I know that? Well, take a look in your communities and tell me where all the tobacco stores go and where all the liquor stores go. They don't go in the nice communities, the predominantly white suburbs. They are all hyper-targeted in communities of color and underserved communities. Let's just be honest about that. A tobacco has a predatory model, and that model now is being extended by the marijuana industry, where here in Denver, in our poorest communities, there's a pot shop for every 42 residents. And you look at it for the white communities and the richer communities, and it's there's very few pot shops. And so not only are they targeting communities of color and underserved communities, but they're also not owned by these communities. So, you know, one of the promises made to us was we'll have social equity in the marijuana industry. And, you know, this will be something that will bring money back to black communities. And I, let's just, you know, deal away with the idea that bringing drugs into communities is good for them and set that aside for a second. But this industry is less than 4% Black-owned nationally. 
less than 4%. It hasn't been a model for social equity. And then you just go even further and say, well, does that even make sense to bring to underserved communities and say, this is your revenue model? You know, you don't get education jobs. You don't get tech jobs. We're not going to bring you into these new great, you know, industries. Here, you can have marijuana. And it's interesting because you look at the, the model with Native Americans, and that's always something that's really bothered me, is we said, okay, we're going to throw you on reservations, you know, they're awful, awful quality of life there. Oh, but, you know, to make ourselves feel better, here's casinos. It's legal for you to have casinos on reservations, and now you're going to make all this money. And so you see that, you know, the world cannot provide justice. Satan and the way he, in the prince of this, this world, he cannot provide justice. Only Christ can provide true justice. And I think that's where we have to really deal with reality and say, look, we don't need to uh, imprison people for making poor choices. And we can have the discussion all day long about good criminal justice reform. My organization supports that. But what we're talking about with legalization is allowing big corporations that have a track record of hurting the least of us. As Jesus said, how we treat the least of us is how we will be judged, right? So hurting those who are the least of us in our communities, and we're allowing them to then use other substances to keep people basically in submission and profit centers. And I think that's the concern we have with legalization. And just one other thing I'll say, Doug, about that is the people who are leading this charge are big tobacco. Altria is the new name for Philip Morris, and they're the largest tobacco company in our country. They've put more than $2 billion into the marijuana industry. They're the ones that have hired up all the big lobbying firms in DC and are quarterbacking the effort to legalize marijuana. I led the fight in Colorado against psychedelics legalization, and it was for medical psychedelics. And the two biggest funders was the billionaire founder of Tom's Shoes, Okay, so he has no idea about anything about medicine, but he put millions into that ballot measure, as well as other tech and Silicon Valley CEOs and other just retail CEOs. So people who their lives are about making a profit are the ones driving the push to legalize drugs. No medical associations, no healthcare organizations, you know, no doctors. Um, it's people who they just want to make money and, and they want to make money at the expense of the least of us. And so I think that's a really important thing to understand, particularly for those of you who are in church and in ministry, is it's not about, you know, raining hellfire and brimstone on the person who, you know, is making a bad choice in their life and is addicted to, you know, pot or whatever else. It's not about, you know, trying to condemn folks. It's about trying to protect the least of us. And it is about trying to protect our next generation from being harmed by industries that have a very bad track record of being irresponsible and pushing substances that hurt people. So hopefully that that nuance makes sense. Getting back to two points, I guess we've kind of talked about true experts medically and in, in the science, but secondly, are those like some of we knew, including myself, that we can give some sensibility because we've done those things right. and we know the adverse effects in our lives and those around us, but yet that doesn't seem to be the narrative right now. It's like that TV show, American Greed. Behind all the love of money is evil. And we see so much is formulated because of this love for money and greed and kicking the can down the street, so to speak, because it's about making money now and justifying it in other ways. I've got friends that are in Native American communities and the casinos come in. It's supposed to help the whole community, yet it's still impoverished. People are still addicted on alcohol and drugs. And yet all this increase of income doesn't come into the average person just like in our society or in our nation, that we're seeing all this extra revenue being spent around is still going through the very people that are propagating it. Right. Yeah. You can't put lipstick on a pig. Only in America, I just think it's so crazy. You'll have like I, Nike is a great example. So you have a company like Nike 
And they're literally using sweatshop labor in China and kids to do their labor to make their products very cheap. And we all know that that's a horrible thing that they're, that they're doing that. But then they put $100 million because of all their, their money that they have, $100 million into social justice causes and other things. And we all say, oh, well, you know, it's great that they're doing that with their money. As if, you know, the, the good action on the one hand offsets the bad action on the other hand. And we know as believers that that's not true. It doesn't work like that with God. You don't have kind of the scale of, okay, I'm going to do enough good things to outweigh my bad things. Uh, it doesn't work that way, right? And so, and I think that, you know, when you look at the, the society around us, the way we should engage with the culture is we can't legislate Christianity to everybody. We can't write laws to make people have faith in Christ and, you know, see things the right way. So we shouldn't seek to do that. Um, you know, it's something that needs to come from the heart. But what we do need to do is we need to fight for a society and legislation that allows people the opportunity to thrive and be able to make that choice with a clear mind. And so that means sparing them from predatory industries, keeping them of sober mind so they can not be persuaded and distracted by the enemy, protecting them from the other permanent harms that we're seeing. You know, there's a lot of policy issues we're all aware of that I could talk about that we're hearing about in the daily news right now, fights to uh, prevent people from permanently altering their lives down a course the enemy wants to take them before they even have the chance to consciously make that decision for themselves. And so I think we have to fight to create a society and a culture where people are able to find Christ on their own, but protecting them from the attacks of the enemy in the process. And so that's the way I look at it from this drug policy issue is I can't force people to you know, not make that decision to smoke pot. But what I can do is fight for a society where they know the facts, they are um, protected as best as we possibly can from being served messages from a young age on their phone or on billboards or whatever else saying, you know, this is harmless, use it, it's medicine. Um, we need to protect people from that so that they can have the facts, have a clear mind and hopefully make the right choice. Because what we know in drug prevention is that if we are able to get somebody to get all the way up to the age of, I believe it's 24, without using substances, they're unlikely, 99% of them beyond the age of 24, they are not likely to go and use substances after that. So if we can protect people from those formative years, from their childhood all the way up to 24, from using substances, they've got a very good likelihood of being spared from that later in life. And so I think that's a really key point to know. And then we were talking about how it has adverse effects in other areas of society. And uh, I was wrote in some of my books over the years, and just to, in fact, my latest podcast, I wrote that a 2019 study by the Pew Research Center of 130 countries and territories shows that the U.S. is the most fatherless country in the world, with 20% of people under 18 living in single-parent households, of which most are single-parent mothers. That is three times the worldwide average of 7%. If we see that as 2019, I can only imagine that the increased use and legalization of drug use and or just giving a turning our eyes away from the realities of what's right in front of us, that uh, we probably see a huge increase of those percentages even now more than ever, because you have absentee fathers, you have homes that are now being split over drugs and over economics and so on because of the use of drugs. So I just see we're going down a pathway. And some of the people, they so-called people they talk about or talk on the you know professional athletes and others and congressional people, they can afford to talk about it because they have money. Right, right. But the cost to the average citizen is increased. You might have increase of income because of welfare, increased income because of increasing minimum wage or increase of salaries. But at the end of the day, the cost of living goes up. 
because our taxes at every level, local, state, national, federal, it increases the cost of medical care, everything increases. So what you have at the end of the day is far less. In fact, we're underwater in so many ways because the increase of utility costs, so many things. And yet we are blinded to that as we're seeing the average American being impacted by the choices that we're making. Yeah, it's a great point. You know, and, and the impact on the family is twofold, right? You have the parents who they're in an environment, a lot of folks, especially in, in poverty, they're they're gonna have a lot, whatever it is, traumas, et cetera. When a parent chooses to engage in drug use, then they're abdicating their role as the parent in the child's life. Then the child is growing up with that trauma and that issue, that relational, you know, stress and other issues. And so then that child is then growing up in an environment where then they're seeking, you know, to use drugs in many cases to alleviate those those hurts and, and those issues because of what's been modeled for them. So you see that multi-generational impact of the use of drugs and how it can truly destroy families. And I'll take it a step further. Then you have somebody who gets into active addiction. And what we understand about addiction now from the literature is that addiction truly becomes a disease. It's a decision when, you, when you're making that choice to use drugs, and that's where we have to try to impact people. But then once they develop addiction, it becomes a disease where mentally their brain basically gets hijacked. They're turned uh, against all the decisions that they would rationally make if they were uh, of sound mind. And addiction drives them to make horrific decisions, steal from relatives, sell you know, personal effects, do horrific things that you know, many of us probably read about and heard about. They'll do horrific things that are completely antithetical to what we as humans are biologically determined to do, You know, take care of our children. You literally have people that left their kids in a hot car. I was just reading this story the other day, left their kids in a very hot car, child dies in the hot car while they're trying to score drugs, right? And you think to yourself, how could somebody do that? Well, addiction will drive people to do that. And so that is why it's so important that we try to deal with addiction before it starts, A, and then be able to treat addiction uh, after it begins, because it does turn people against each other. It's the most evil instrument of the enemy to hijack our brains against ourselves and, and make us do things that are just horrible. And that's why also when you go down the road of normalizing drug use, it just doesn't make sense for so many reasons. But that's one of the big ones is that it assumes that somebody who makes the choice to use drugs, they're taking that decision on themselves and they're going to make a rational decision of, oh, I've got a problem. I'm going to stop. Well, we understand with addiction that when somebody's in addiction, they're not going to make the, the rational choice of, well, you know, I'm addicted to fentanyl and I could overdose any day now, or I'm addicted to marijuana and I'm spending 75% of my income on this. I'm not able to provide for my family. Maybe I should stop. Addiction doesn't work that way. You, you don't make rational decisions in most cases with addiction like that. Understanding that about addiction tells us everything we need to know about this push to normalize drug use because we know that there's a large chunk of people who will develop an addiction. And once they're in addiction, they're going to make a lot of really awful choices that will impact their family and the community around them. We have to protect them from that, but also the community from those kinds of decisions as well. This has been a great conversation, Luke. Thank you so much. And we can go on for another hour because I was just thinking about, I spent a lot of time on the border with all the crisis there. But one of the things that people are not looking at in all the narrative and all the media is that there's a huge amount of human trafficking taking place, as well as harvesting of babies from pregnant women to get them across and children. But even more than that, a lot of the drug cartels, again, it's about money, are working with China and people from China. And a large amount of the a huge percentage of the fentanyl coming across the border is China made. And so there's this partnership. It's all business to them. But ultimately, 
if you get America addicted to drugs and dying from drugs, that we become so weakened, the nefarious characters around the world or those who are trying to do harm to our nation see us in a weakened state and they can move right in and do what they want to do to see the degradation of our nation, but also taking over at every level from politics to medicine to economics, you name it. So it was been surprising to me as I was speaking to people on the border and the experts that the largest amount of drugs coming across comes from China, the fentanyl. It's not just people coming from the southern border, it's people coming from all other countries as well through the southern border. So there's a whole lot more of the story, but people don't, they only hear the topical. They don't want to dig deep and find out the ultimate root of it and the end result of where we're going with all of this. So we need to have you back on again sometime, Luke. And I always believe in ending on a positive. We've talked a lot of things. But we also have people like you that are looking for solutions and helping to educate and bring solutions. One of the things I reminded of and, and I've written about during the Jesus Revolution and afterwards, it's been said that one of the great uh, latter outpourings would be the father heart of God upon the generation. In this fatherlessness and the, the crisis we're in, I'm praying that we would see an outpouring of God's presence and the father heart of God poured out upon Amen. us, even in our ignorance, in our sad state that we become in our country. I'm hoping for a prophetic generation to rise up in the midst of it all, and the Gen Zs, the Gen Alphas, the Millennials, that it would rise up as yourself and others, rise up and take the lead to lead us across and to possess the promises of God in what seems to be an impossible time and situation. But I believe God can do that because the Father heart of God poured out upon a generation can do that. So Luke, how do people get a hold of you, find out more about what you do? So learnaboutsam.org, learnaboutsam.org is our website. And then you can also contact me at luke at learnaboutsam.org. I will uh, put this in the chat. Happy to answer any questions you have, provide more information. What I would say is I I just think we really need to hear more from the church on these issues. States are making these considerations. Churches have so much influence in their community to talk to their members about this, as well as the influence that you you have a lot of lawmakers and policymakers that are in your congregations um, that need to hear loud and clear from you what a godly worldview is on on legislating and what factors they need to consider. And so, you know, I think churches underestimate the power that they have, not, you know, in in lobbying or taking a side on all the issues, but just communicating the godly worldview on how government should work, because the Bible talks a lot about how government should work. You look at Romans and, and how we're supposed to interact. So, it's there. We need to be communicating that message from a faith-based perspective so that the lawmakers and the representatives of the people who are in your congregations are hearing how they should, you know, in doing their jobs, the godly worldview on their jobs. And what is the rubric of a faith-based person who's representing the people? What is the rubric for policy? And I I think that is just so needed from the church um, in, in terms of communicating biblical principles. Amen. Well, Luke, thank you so much. And I think it's been very, very helpful. If you would take a moment and just pray for all of us, especially for for leaders to rise up for times such as this and recognize the seriousness of the hour, but the opportunity of the moment as well. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for this time, Lord. And I just pray, Jesus, that um, the the words have been spoken, Lord, that you would use them, uh, that they would be seeds, Lord Jesus, that would bear um, fruit for your kingdom, uh, Lord. And I just pray, Jesus, that this would be a time of edification for the specific needs and issues going on in the worlds of each of the people 
on the Zoom and, and those who are listening in the different formats that they'll be listening, Jesus, um, that uh, these words would go out, Lord, you would use them for your purpose, to your glory, Lord, and to serve those folks who are doing such a great job of just humbly serving um, your purpose for their lives, Lord. I just pray your blessing over Doug, over the ministry of Somebody Cares, over each and every one of the people listening, Lord, and watching Jesus, that they would be blessed, that you would give them wisdom, that your Holy Spirit would go with them, they would feel your presence with them in everything that they do, Jesus. Your blessing over their needs, your provision for their needs, Lord, and your just expansion and blessing over the ministry and the service that these folks are doing all across this country and all across this world, Lord. Uh, May you go with them and may you be with them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.